Uh, a couple things. Uh, again, as Judy was saying, business meeting tonight. If you call Element Home, you want to know more about planting roots, where we're at, where it's going, come tonight, 6 o'clock. Uh, hopefully, it'll be short. I am planning to be out of here by like 7, 7, 10. It's longer than that. I'm just walking out anyway. I don't really run the meeting, so, you know, I can do that. I'll be like, I'm out. Kind of like some of you when I talk too long. You just leave. You don't think I notice, but I do. There you go. Uh, also, our gospel class, uh, which is an eight-week class, and it talks about basic Christian theology, what we believe at Element as our philosophy of ministry, where we believe God is calling us to go. That is an eight-week class. It's also a prerequisite to uh, uh, being a member at Element. I require three things. If you want to become a member of Element, number one, that you believe in Jesus. I say that, and usually everybody goes, ha, I'm not kidding. I mean, <laughs> got to believe in Jesus, right? Uh, second thing is that you go through the gospel class. Again, it starts next week, second service. So during this service, you can get up to the 8.15 or go to the 11 o'clock if you've never been to the gospel class. And then the third thing is that you be baptized. Uh, you don't have to be baptized at Element. We're not one of those churches that's like, if you did it anywhere else, it doesn't count. You know, it's, you just get baptized, right? Be baptized at some point, and then those three things, and that's like uh, the way into membership. So, if you want to know more about us and all that kind of stuff, next week, 9.30, this service, gospel class starts, so make plans to go to that if you've never been to it. And the last thing I have, and someone gave me, where's Jonas? Jonas Tucker, where'd you go? Right there. Um, somebody said, you're, you're a good illustrator, you can draw really well. Okay, well, he's shaking his head. If, if you are somebody who can draw well, not like, I was in the third grade and I made Mickey Mouse ears, not like that, but you actually can, can draw well, can you let me or someone at the Welcome Center know? Because what we want to do is we have this, this series coming up in the middle of the summer. We have some stuff we need kind of drawn out for it, and we need some help to do that because I draw like the kid in third grade. <laughs> I made a circle. You know, that's, and it's not really that round, so it's, I'm just horrible. Actually, I wish I would have remembered this, and I would have shown you this picture of my... I need to get going here. I'm sorry. Um, I had this picture of, the, of a snowman that I drew when, when I was a kid, and mine's like all looks like it got run over by a semi, and my brother's is like right next to it, perfectly round. Per- he is the older brother in the story, which we'll talk about <laughs> this morning. It's, I'm sorry. If, if you're new here today, that's an answer. We've been going through the prodigal God... You'll understand in just a minute. All right, so uh, if you are new and you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, inside of those, you'll get some notes to go along with the message as well as some questions to go a little bit deeper. On the back, there's some announcements in that if you don't want to go grab one of those, you feel Weird about getting out of your seat? You can download an app. It's called Uversion. You can click on Live in Uversion, and it will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes and verses and all the questions that go along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here, so welcome to you. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word, and this is where we'll get started. This is Isaiah 53, verse 6, and it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means that you are a father who has sought your children, who has chased us down and loved us, that all that separated us from you, you have placed upon your son at the moment of the cross. And that you call us to be a people who can live and walk in newness of life as he rose from the dead. And that we can see you as our gracious and good God, and we can live as your children in this world. Amen. Have a seat. 
Right, so this is the last week in our series. We're calling it The Prodigal God. We stole the title from Tim Keller's book uh, called The Prodigal God. We encourage all of you guys to pick up a copy and read it. It's a small book. It's easy to get through. It has a lot of great wisdom in it. The subtitle to this book is Recovering the Heart of the Christian Faith. And that's kind of what we want this series to do, kind of recover the gospel and what it really means. Uh, the parable is called, in Luke 15, you can open your Bibles there, by the way, Luke 15, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, but as we talked about last week, it really should be called the parable of the father, because it's all about the father, the goodness of God in relation to a rebellious people. And today what we're going to do, as the fifth week through this, is we're going to look at, hopefully, who you are in the story. Because obviously you are not the father, right? We're, we're one, of the, one of the other brothers. And I think that today, by the end, we can see how we're both of the brothers. And again, as you start this, you can't forget how Jesus begins all of this. Okay, It starts with a, with a parable of a lost sheep and a lost coin, and he essentially ends these parables with Luke 15, verse 10. Just so, I, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This means it's all about salvation. The point of it all is salvation. It's all about the gospel. And today we're going to go through this parable one more time. You're probably tired of hearing it. I'm tired of not reading it, or reading, I don't know. We're going to go through it again. You're going to be fine with it, okay? So this is how the, the parable starts. Luke 15, verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. And so this is what we talked about last week. It's the parable of a man, and he had two sons. It's this guy, he had two boneheaded kids, and yet he loves them. The story that Jesus tells is a slice out of everyday life, so the people there would understand it, even if they hadn't personally lived it. It's like if, if I said to you, uh, there's a dad who got up in the morning, he had two kids, he got them dressed, fed them breakfast, dropped them off at the sitter or daycare on the way to work, he's at work for two hours and he gets a call from the sitter of the daycare because one kid is smashing the other kid in the face with a hammer. You, now some of you have never experienced that, right? But you can relate to it because you're part of the culture. It's like, oh, you understand work, dad, kids, daycare, babysitter, you understand all that. You had happened to you, but, but you get it. I mean, some of you guys are like, that is my life right there. Right. I get to work and boom, yes, smash, hammer, face, that's, that's what happens. This is a picture of village life that everybody could understand, even if they hadn't personally lived or seen a love of the Father like this. Last week we talked a little bit about character. And so what do you see in that father? He is a father who is shown to be wise and patient and firm and gentle. He's full of integrity. He's full of honesty. He's devoted to his kids, but not like an American sense devoted to his kids. Like he doesn't worship his kids like we do. He doesn't let them do what whatever they want. This father allows his kids to go through some very difficult hardships, to sit in misery, to allow stressful circumstances that was of his kids' own choosing to stay in their life so it humbles them and brings them to repentance. He doesn't sweep in and save them before he has determined it is necessary. But in the end, the father does do whatever he can to restore relationship. What are the kids like? What are their character? Well, they both broke relationship with their father. They both broke his heart. And what Jesus is essentially telling these people in this parable is that they have been a people who have broken God's heart in different ways, but the Father still loves them. So you have these two kids. You have the firstborn, and what are firstborns like? Good boys, right? They're like good boys. I mean, they're, they're like perfectionists. It's like, you know, you get them a coloring book, and they color in the lines. That, that they sit in the lines. It's, uh, they can go to church and sit through a message. They mow the lawn. They clean behind their ears. They do their homework. They achieve everything that they think they're supposed to achieve. Perfectionists, firstborn. Second child, what are they like? Crazy, right? 
just, just crazy. Colors outside the lines. They don't even know why there's lines on the paper. It's like, what? What is it? You know, I don't even know what this is supposed to be. They seek attention. They find ways to get attention when they don't think they have enough. Uh, they can be spoiled and immature because they usually see the world being all about themselves. That's the second born. They know how to manipulate situations to get what they want. There's even a Pew Research poll that shows us that statistically speaking, this is how younger and older siblings are. I mean, there's always exceptions. Like, you could be the exception. I I know. I I get that, right? And if you have three kids or more, you throw off the whole paradigm, so we're not talking about you. Okay. (laughs) So one day... The younger son does the unthinkable, and he blows his family apart. Luke 15, verse 12, he says, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. This is like, Dad, I'm tired of waiting around for you to die, so let's just pretend it actually already happened, and give me what's mine, and I'm going to take off. The kid gets his wish, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now, as we know, if you've been through this parable before, you've seen that this family's doing really well. They, they've got land and livestock and servants. And so it probably takes these few days to get all of these things together for the father to get them to his kid. Uh, this is a communal society, so even though it hasn't been spoken what is happening, people start to notice. Why is this guy leveraging his assets? Why is he selling all these things? Something's going on. Probably becomes all the gossip around the water cooler. Oh, did you hear what his son did? Oh, I never. My son would never do that. My son's a good boy. He's a firstborn. He would never do anything like that. It's a big deal what this son is doing to his father. And this, this isn't totally unprecedented in the ancient world. Uh, there's references uh, you know, throughout the centuries of different things like this. Kenneth, Kenneth Bailey in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal, talks about this, writes about this extensively. Uh, there's actually a first century Jewish uh, custom that relates to this. Eric Jafruti and I were talking about this the week after he gave his message. I'm surprised he didn't talk about this because it's kind of in the book right where all this is. But there's a sermon, it's called the Kazazah. The kazazah, and it means the cutting off, the cutting off. If a Jewish boy would take his inheritance and he loses it among the Gentiles, so the Gentiles end up with all the resources that had once been part of Israel, he was seen to be cut off. So the village, what they would do is they'd gather together, they'd find a clay pot that would symbolize the life of this boy, and they would break it in front of the boy on his return home. So he tries to return home, they do the ceremony, boom, and they break the pot, and they say, kazazah! Say it. Kazaza. You're way better than first serve. First serve is like, Kazaza. I'm like, what? Are you asleep? Kazaza. And you're not supposed to be that excited about it. <laughs> Woo! Can you imagine that? He's back. Woo! Kazaza. You're out. That's, that's, what, that's the representation you would see. You know, this, this broken pot is this broken village, is this broken life. You broke not only the heart of your father, but you broke the heart of the village. And so you have broken trust and broken community and broken faith. It was to show that you can never be whole again. This community will never be whole again. We're like Humpty Dumpty and all the king's horses and men can't put us back together again. You're not welcome home. You're not welcome to be part of this. You're not family. And I would assume it takes a few days for the father to get all of this done because he wants his son to realize what's going to happen. He wants his son to begin the act of repentance, see what he's doing, but the kid doesn't. He just wants his money and he wants to go. So then what happens? Well, he goes to a distant country where he thinks he's going to make it. You know, he's the younger kid. Everything's about him. Hollywood, I got my golden ticket. 
for you American Idol fans. You know, he goes and thinks, you know, he probably sings horribly, but his mommy is like, oh, you sing so good. <laughs> and he's splattered across the TV like, oh, that, that's funny. That guy can't sing at all. Send him to Hollywood. We'll get another laugh. He's like, yes, it's about me, Hollywood. That's, that's him. He just goes for it until the money runs out because the money always runs out. Or if the money doesn't run out, you know, you end up dying at some point. And it's bad. When the money runs out, he can no longer pay for his entourage. He can no longer get the hey, can, they can no longer buy drinks, so they get new friends. And then, as if it can't even get any worse, a famine hits the land. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. The word severe, when it refers to this famine, the King James uses the word mighty. It's a mighty famine. In, in Greek, when this word is used of inanimate things like a famine, it's usually translated as violent. Violent. This is a violent famine. It's really bad. This is a kind that we only see on TV. You know, kids with distended bellies, and there's no Sally Struthers to come in and make a difference, no Compassion International, no World Vision. Communication at this point probably doesn't even get in or out of this area. And usually when things get this bad in a famine like this, the strong would prey on and they would destroy the weak to stay alive. Uh, historically, there are instances in this of cannibalism, of children being sold into slavery so the, weak, or so the strong could actually go get more food. And what's the son now? Well, the son is weak and he's destitute and he's alone. He is afraid. And, and there's the question, you know, why does the kid not want to go home at this point? Why does he stay where he is? Because he's up. Illustration, people. Illustration, right? Because he knows what's waiting for him. Kazazah is what's waiting for him. This kid is on the doorstep of starvation. His, his entire life is just whittling and wasting away. And rather than going back to his father, he stays where he is because he knows what's waiting. What he starts doing when he gets really, really hungry, he starts to formulate a plan. Oh, I, I know what I'll do. I'll work it off myself. Because what does that do? It still keeps him in the center of everything. He gets to make all the, it's still all about him. I'll make the decisions, I'll do this, I'll make it okay. But he knows he's going to need his father's backing to make this happen. So he makes a speech in his mind. Verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You know, this is exactly how a lot of people approach God today. Just like that. It's why people say things like, oh, I would never go into a church if I did lightning would strike me or or the walls would fall down or something like that. It is this innate feeling inside of us that is kazazah, that we are cut off from God. It is why Christianity is so ridiculed by people who who haven't surrendered their lives to Jesus, who don't understand it, because to truly follow Jesus, it means that we understand our own lostness. We understand our own weakness. And people who follow Jesus are those who get that, who begin to understand that. I mean, the younger brother gets to a point where he's getting a little bit of the idea of repentance. It's not full-fledged, but he's starting to get there. And this is the idea of teshuva. This is what the Hebrews would call repentance, a return, a going back home, teshuva. Personally, I would like to think that this father, because of the vast resources that we know that he has, has never truly left his son alone. I mean, I've got in the back of my mind, the text doesn't say it. I think it's implied, but the text doesn't say it, that the father kept watch and tabs on his son. I think when the famine hits, the father doesn't step in because many times hardship and pain are good for us to grow. I think the father's heart is broken over his lost son, but he's not going to stop the pain. He's not going to stop what's causing his son to grow out of this. He doesn't remove the consequences from his son's actions. 
But when a son begins to see his lostness, sees his brokenness, when the pain brings about the intended results, the father acts as I believe the father has been acting the entire time. Why do I say this? Because the father knows his son is coming home. In verse 20, it says, while he was still a long way off. While the son was a long way off. You know, you know what the Greek words a long way off mean? A long way off. Okay? That's what it means. And his kid's a long way off, and yet he knows he's coming home. How does he know? Because he must have been keeping tabs on his kid. I mean, he's got, kid's got this dumb speech in his mind. Oh, I'll do this, and I'll do this, and all of this. You know, I, I think what happens is maybe the kid gets inside of the village, and his dad knows when this kid sees the village, he's going to get cold feet. Because Cousin Zah's coming. And he might even want to turn around and walk away. I think that's why the father runs. He's not going to give his son a chance to chicken out. Verse 20, but while he's still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced and kissed him. Luke uses the word trachea right here for the word run. In a lot of different Greek writings, that word means to incur extreme peril. He's running so fast and so hard that he might trip and fall and hurt himself. This is running past your limits. It's like the last mile of a marathon. If you're me, it's like the first mile of a marathon, (laughs) past my limits, okay? It is so out of character for the father of a family to run. For us, it would be like seeing Jabba the Hutt run. You guys ever see Star Wars? Okay, Jabba doesn't run. It'd have to be all special effects, which Jabba is anyway. So anyway, whatever, it just doesn't happen. Again, so why does the father run? Because his son may be chickening out. He realizes this is going to happen. Kenneth Bailey, in his book, says that the father also started to run because as he saw this, the village would have been like, why is this guy running? They would have run to see what's going on and why this guy is running. And when they saw the kid, what do they want to do? Right, they want to get a hold of him, bring him to the center of the village, and do the ceremony and say you are done. So the father is running to his kid first to get his hands on him, to hold his kid and take all the humiliation that the whole village wants to throw on this kid. The father's going to get there, and the father's going to take it. Now, who's hearing this story? Sinners and religious leaders. That's who's listening to the story. And so the religious people would hear Jesus' words like some fairy tale. It's it's like Dumbo. It's like an elephant with big ears that could fly. This is just a crazy, dumb story. The sinners would hear something completely different. They would hear, God is so filled with compassion for you that whatever distant country you have been in, he has never stopped loving and running towards you. Now, one commentator kind of flips this on its head. It's a horrible comment, but he says, no matter where you've been, the second you take a step towards God, he comes running to you. So it's all about you. That's all the younger brother right there. That is not how it is. I don't think that's what the text says at all. I think God leaves in a place we realize our sin. He enlightens us. He brings us to a place where we see who he is. And we come, we go, okay, God, I'm going to work this off. And God says, no way, you're not. It's paid. You're my child. Come home. God runs to us, not because we're so good, but because he himself is that good. And people so miss the beauty of Jesus, because in Christ, God is running to us. Hebrews 12, 2 says that we're to look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy we have set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. The scripture teaches that on the cross, Jesus ran. He endured our humiliation so that we could come home. Jesus bore our sin, our humiliation, our death. The father gets the boy, boy, verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He says, there is no causes. Take your clay pots home. And the village might be a little irritated at this. Like, what do you mean? I got a pot. I was here to, woo, to break it. I want, and he goes, no, 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 no. 
I'm going to take this humiliation. And then what does he do? We're going to throw a party. Well, if you're going to throw a party, okay. You know, oh, I'll take my pot home. All right. What time? We'll be there, right? Are you making that special special drink with the lemons and stuff in it? <laughs> I'll be there. Great. All right. Whatever. And, and that's, that's kind of the ether. And so people come and they enter into the joy. They let it, they let all their anger set to the side. Why? Because my son was lost. He's found. He was dead. He's alive. It is sending a message of restoration and reconciliation. What Jesus says is, we all get to come home. Maybe you've made some bad choices in your life. Maybe you squandered it. You get to come home. Maybe you've stolen or cheated or you have a terrible relationship nightmare. That's all your fault. You get to come home. Maybe you've done things in your life that you never want to say out loud because people would view you differently. You get to come home. Maybe you're even in a church service this morning, but you're still in a far country, a far place away because you're trapped in something. It's hooks in you so deep and you just can't get out of it. You don't know what to do. You get to come home. A couple weeks ago, I spent some time talking about the older brother. Maybe you're more like him. You work, work really hard. You look really good. You do everything you think you're supposed to do. Because that's the older brother in the story. He works hard. He stays home in his father's house. But he saw a relationship with his dad as a boss-employee relationship. Why well, do these things? And then I get favor from you. It's about conforming to what he thought he should be and never truly having any obedience from his heart, which is where his father really wanted it from. I mean, have you ever seen somebody so in love with Jesus and you're like, man, that is weird. I mean, holy cow, what's up with them? They're always talking about him, how they were saved, how they were changed. You're like, calm down, buddy, really, okay, calm down. I mean, have you ever maybe had resentment towards somebody else, anger, pride about how you follow Jesus and you try so hard and you do all these things and they don't even seem to really care? (gasps) What's wrong with them? See, the hard thing about understanding this parable is that the older brother would have never experienced kazah. Ever. Everyone would have seen him as the faithful one. He's always doing his job. He's the good one. He probably took pride in it. As a matter of fact, he know he took pride in it because when his younger brother comes home and his father's like, we're going to have a party and we're going to rejoice, what does the older brother have? Resentment and scorn. He's just angry. How dare you throw a party for him? In verse 29, it's like, all these years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. And you never even gave me a young goat. Because apparently that was the thing then. I want a goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, it was devoured your property of the prostitute. You killed the fattened calf for him. It's all resentment. It is all accusation. It is the hard heart that will not enter into the party that his father is throwing. Saying, a lost one has come home. I mean, this kid never would have experienced outward kazah, but he's done it to himself in his own heart. He's already been cut off, which tells you even older brothers need the same love and grace as the father. I think those who don't think they need it probably need it even more. Jesus died in our place for our sins. Nobody earns their way home. What this parable is meant to show you is first the father, who he was. Secondly, the sons. And then thirdly, the great salvation that's been offered to all of us. Both sons are invited to the party, into the feast, into the joy, into this celebration. One thought it was too good to be true until the father begins to change his mind. The other thought it was too good for anybody but him. It's only for me. I worked for it. The question is, who are you in the story? Who are you in the story? Tim Keller, uh, in his book, he talks about the feast of the father, how it represents salvation in four different ways. So I'm still in this right out of the book, so you should read it, but you get to skip a whole chapter. All right. (laughs) First off, he says, salvation is experiential. 
Uh, it engages our senses of sight and sound and smell and taste. The scriptures are constantly putting salvation in experiential terms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Keller quotes Jonathan Edwards as saying, the difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual sense of its sweetness. So Keller says, God's mercy and grace are real on the plate of our heart. We experience God's goodness. When we leave behind our shame and our guilt, we live in true freedom. It is experiential. Second thing is that salvation is material. It's a meal. It's a meal. Jesus, after he rises from the dead, eats a meal with his disciples. The wedding supper of the Lamb, the culmination of history, is written as a physical thing. The physical world matters to God. Too long, people in the church are always trying to separate the spiritual and the physical. That's based on Greek Greek dualism. It's not based on the scriptures. We are told the spiritual and the physical are both good things. People always say, you need to be more spiritual. You do need to be more spiritual. Okay, You, you do. But in Genesis chapter 1, God looks on all the physical things he has made, and what does he say? It's good. Jesus rises from the dead in a physical body. The climax of all human history is not angels with harps on clouds. It's seen in a meal. In a meal. It's a feast, just like the story. There is joy and dancing and laughter and choice wine and good food. Why? Well, because Jesus rules and reigns. Revelation 4.2, it says, Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. First off, it's a good thing someone's on that throne. Secondly, it's a good thing it's Jesus. But thirdly, a throne is a physical representation of Jesus ruling and reigning. There were thrones reserved for four types of people. Kings who ruled over a kingdom. Priests who mediated between God and people. Thirdly, judges who rendered decisions regarding sin. And fourthly, warriors who sat down after conquering an enemy and liberated a people. In Revelation, Jesus is on the throne as our king. He is our ruler, a judge that convicts of sin, a priest that comes off the throne to save us, and a warrior that has come in and his sovereign rule extends over all of creation for all time. It's seen as a physical thing. Thirdly, salvation is individual. God saves us individually. You know, the older brother lived in conformity and said, well, I'll obey my father and therefore I will get blessing. Christianity is the exact opposite. It is, I am accepted by God, therefore I will live a certain way. The gospel gives all of our relationships a brand new identity. You know, when you start to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean he's done with you. It means you're on the journey in your entire life. He's going to keep changing and growing you. In order to grow in Christ, you must remember the gift that the Father gave to both of his sons. I think both sons live like our world today, exactly like our world. They got to do what they ever thought they wanted was right. And that was their freedom. But in the end, their freedom is what enslaved them. It was the father who bore the cost for both of these brothers to set them free. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, We not only stress that grace is free, we also focused on the cost of that grace and how seriously God takes sin. You know, there's this old saying, you might have heard it, it says, Live in such a way that when you die, the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. That's the idea right there. Fourth thing is salvation is communal. It's communal. A feast or a party is communal by nature. You do it with other people. You're invited, but you're not the only one there. I mean, if you're like, no, it's a party of one. Woo! Yeah! You need to go to AA. Okay? If that's you. A party is communal by nature. A lot of people gathering together. God invites you to his party. It's not your party. Well, I'm not there, so it's not going to be a party. No, the party's still going on. Right? It's God's party. You're invited in to the party. It is an offer of friendship and inheritance. 
In our culture, we think the interest of the individual overpowers the interests of the group, which leads to a high number of people who want to grow in their relationship with Christ but refuse to join or go to a church and, and worship with other believers. People stay away from churches or stay away from gospel communities because they're hard. Because dealing with people is hard. People stink. I know they stink. I am one, and I know that I'm a hard person. Ask my wife. I'm a hard person to live with because I make fun of everything. It's, it's horrible, you know? But if you don't enter into a communal relationship like God calls us to, you're refusing to enter into the party. We cannot live the life that Jesus intends for us to live if we're not connected to other believers. C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, in referencing Isaiah 6.3, said, Thus, the more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. The more we shall have. You and I have been invited to experience this feast. It is spiritual, but also physical salvation. We realize that we've been saved individually, but also saved to live in community. It's why the Father seeks out both boys. It's why he tries to bring them both to this feast. Now today, we live what's called post-resurrection. Okay? It's after Jesus rose from the dead, which gives us a very unique perspective on this parable. We get to know what this whole thing looks like completely fleshed out. We get to look at it in light of the cross. And it's like Jesus says, if you want to know how much the Father loves you, you look at the cross. Because that shows the Father's love for you. His own son becomes broken. His body is broken on the cross. In a lot of ways, I don't think we even fathom. Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that tells you? It tells you on the cross, Jesus becomes kazazah. Jesus becomes cut off for our sake. It's not because we are so good. It's because he is. All this is done so we get to come home. God forgives our sin, what separates us from him and us from each other. He is taking care of that. But it's also this promise of home. John 14, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We're invited home. The hunger that you and I have for a home, I choke people up a lot, it's okay. Okay. The hunger that, that you and I have for home, it's not a hunger that this earth or people or things can fill. Nobody can fill that for us. It's a hunger that Jesus made us to have for him. It's a hunger we have to be forgiven and loved to have our brokenness all put back together. The hunger for home is a hunger for Jesus. And God says he will make his home in us and we will never be alone. That's his promise. See, who are you in the story? You are both those brothers. I am both those brothers. We will fall into those modes the rest of our life. Sometimes we'll run off and do stupid, crazy things. Sometimes we'll be doing really well and look at everybody else and wonder why they can't do as well as we're doing. Look how good I am. We must understand the Father is the one who has run to us in Jesus to bring us home. It is about what he has done, and that is the gospel. You ever have somebody say, you know, oh, what's the gospel? Can you define it for me? Luke 15. Read the story. That's the gospel right there. The Father has run to his children to save us because we were lost and we were broken. Some of us were at home and very close but very prideful, never understanding the full grace of our Father. And yet God has run to save us. It is beautiful. This is why we talk about communion every week here where you come and you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. Well, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Jesus becomes cut off where we should have been cut off. 
He lets relationship between us and God be restored because he was cut off. Then he rose from the dead that brings us to new life again. And we get to have a new relationship with our Father. All because of what he has done. It's amazing. The band's going to come up. Yes, they do. We invite you guys to take communion. Uh, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe you feel like you are a kazaza. Maybe you feel like, man, I was going to church this morning. I thought the walls were going to fall down when I walked inside. They're concrete with rebar. I think we're okay. But, you know, you may be thinking that. Uh, they would love to pray with you about that. If you have any questions about any of that, they'd love to pray with you. Because it is about the graciousness of a Savior who has rescued and redeemed a lost and broken people. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So you have the opportunity every single week. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what God has done. And there's food in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat, maybe meet some other people, maybe connect a little more in community so it's not just you alone, but you connect with some other people. Maybe go to some of the questions in the sermon notes, talk about some of those things, and begin to work and process through some of that. What it means to be a people who had a father who sought us and saved us and loved us. Because what it does is it makes us a humble people. Because it's nothing that we have done. It's not about, look how good I did this, or look how good I did that. It's all about, look what Jesus has done. It gets our eyes completely off ourselves and puts them where they're supposed to be, which is on Jesus. That's where it is. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, this is what it says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. See, some of you love the sound of that. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Who spoke? The Lord has spoken. That is the thing to remember and understand. It is the Father who has sought us. The Father who has saved us. And we as a people live in humble surrender to that. And our obedience of how we live our lives comes out of that first. That our God sought us. And saved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live in the humbleness of your truth. The grace of the hope that has been extended to us. And though things come into our lives where storms come our way and waters rise and things that we don't understand, where we feel like we have to do something. I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who simply rest and hope in the salvation that you provide. That what we do in our obedience comes out of first, understanding your great love for us. That we follow you because we are blown away with the goodness and the grace that you have shown to us. I see what teaches to understand that you never let go. That though you do allow us, because of some of our stupid decisions to go through some very hard stuff in our lives, we are never outside of your sovereignty. We are never outside of your purview. You know fully what is going on in our lives, and more importantly, more fully what's going on in our hearts. 
so I ask that you would teach us. Have your spirit convict us. Show us what is going on in our own hearts and lives. Bring it to light so that we can see, are we the older or younger brother? How are we both? But then also how we can become undone because of your steadfast love that has been shown to us. And that steadfast love will get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you. That everything would change because you are the God who has saved us. Amen.